Hello everyone. Um, I'm just introducing with Dad our second talk with a guest, um, which again is incredibly exciting and someone who we both think is amazing. And I am again going to hand over to Dad to introduce them properly, because again, in the recording, they just got straight into chatting, which is great. But for anyone who might not know who this guest is, Dad, could you please tell us a little bit about Dave McKean? Okay, Dave is an, a brilliant artist and I was introduced to him by Ian Miller. But before you we were introduced, before I knew him, I collected his work as album covers and been thinking, this is amazing work. I ought to one day check him out. But because we hadn't met, it didn't register until after we did meet. And I thought, yes, I have this whole collection of album covers. Um, he's designed album covers, he's worked on graphic novels, he's made a number of movies, he's said he's on his fourth, um, they're very interesting, very well worth looking for. Um, he's a musician, a writer, I'm really jealous. I think we'll have to have him bumped off. <laughs> it's, it's amazing isn't it because like when I've been telling people about the talks whoever I talk to and whatever they're interested in, know him from something or other. If it's someone in film, they know him from films, or if it's someone into, you know, comics and graphic novels, that's how they know him. So it's, yeah. it's sort of amazing, isn't it? You don't tend to think that, I suppose, as a creative, you can spread yourself out that much and still have an impact in every <laughs> area. Yes, well, he's amazing. Um, in the interview, he describes himself as a, creative which is Jap oh, Japanese the Italian word for someone who covers no that's the English word dad the Italian word is creativo <laughs> creative is English okay well you can only say that because you're in Japan <laughs> I don't know the Japanese word for that <laughs> a few months in Florence working as a creativo on the um Puccini Festival. So no, I'm I wasn't. I was a costumista. <laughs> Do you remember? I'm oh, sorry, everyone. Skip ahead if you don't want to listen to Dad and I talking. Want to get straight to Dave? But I just remember this one thing that really reminded me. Seeing as we talking about the word creativo and costumista, is I remember one of the guys that I was working for there saying that his mother-in-law. Um, would try and communicate with him but she didn't know any Italian so she just put O at the end or A at the end of like words <laughs> so she was saying like where's my bag my bag <laughs> oh there we go saved by the bell everyone you're going to listen to a really amazing talk. I love this. It actually, yeah, got me a bit teary. It was wonderful. David is, a, uh, Dave. Dave is an astonishingly talented and smart person. It was a real pleasure talking. So enjoy, everyone. Bye-bye. Recording now. Yes, I, I like a lot of the German Expressionist movies, Gollum and Nibelungen. Yeah. 
Yeah, Mur Murnau is my hero. It, uh, I think he's one of the most amazing directors there's ever been. And the images in, the images in Faust, I just think every, every single shot is a masterpiece. His wife did the sets, didn't she? Uh, it, it, Fritz Lang's wife. I'm thinking. You're thinking, you're thinking of Fritz Lang. Thea von Harbo uh, wrote the scripts and and I think did other jobs, but but Murnau was gay, so I don't think he was married. <laughs> that was then. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I just thought the sets in Gollum were just yeah amazing. I mean, incredible. Good. Uh, yeah, and there were a few films that were made. There were actual expressionist films with painted sets and distorted windows mm. And, mm. and odd shaped doors, and the whole thing was a sort of psychological space. It made no sense, but it was it was sort of flattened out, but made of these expressive shapes. Yeah, and there were, I mean, Dr. Caligari is the is the classic one, but there were, I think there were about. 10, 12 films made that way, Genuine was made that way, and a version of uh, Crime and Punishment uh, was Raskolnikov was made that way. And they're just amazing films. Incredibly powerful, aren't they? Even without words. Yes, yeah, it was a sort of grand pantomime, a grand, like, a, like a, an extraordinary uh, piece of, uh, uh, you know, puppet theater or something, where there are, there are no words directly but but it's so it's ex incredibly expressive you really have to pay attention i read somewhere that the forest um, where siegfried meets his yeah. end well get that was giant trees they were made in a set in yeah. they do look incredible they do look amazing and some of the italian epics that that the, like Kabiria and things like that, the predated um, D.W. Griffiths. The scale of the sets are just astounding. Mm. There's, a, there's, a, there's a set at the Mouth of the Demon set in uh, Kabiria, which is about 10 stories high with this massive demonic three-eyed face. Uh, I mean, they're just astonishing that these films were made, what, 110 years ago now. I'm gonna have to write that one down. That, that, well, that was the one that inspired Griffiths. Griffith, Griffith saw it and realised that he'd just been playing around and the Italians have really made it an art form. So then he, he was making a little film. Um, what was it called? Um, oh, I can't remember. Uh, it was a little drama, a little, a little drama. And he turned it into the film Intolerance, which is this now massive epic in very in different uh, episodes and he, he he put his little family drama into as one of the episodes but then created these massive the cleopatra one and the other ones so dave how do you think of yourself or doesn't that matter because <laughs> you've movies you've you've made music you've done books yes i try, I try not to think of myself um I, I don't know. I mean, just talking about the Italians, they've got a, this lovely word creativo, which is, it just covers everything. It just means you're a creative person and um, you have ideas and feed those ideas into whichever medium is appropriate for those ideas, or even many of them 
to allow you to look at the idea from different angles, because obviously music sound looks at an idea in a different way than a still image or a moving picture or a story. It's a way of understanding something from different angles. So I always like that word. Fellini always considered himself to be a, a creativo because he was a cartoonist and a writer and a costume designer and a film director. And it seems to me that there's a, there's a sort of hierarchy of effort to bring it out, to make it into the real world. If you're doing one of your postcard books, which by the way, are very, very beautiful, um, you could do that in a hotel room. Yeah. Rainy afternoon. Yeah, often did. <laughs> I was wondering because it had a sense that you were in a place where you had a lot of fun, but there were times when you didn't quite know what to do with yourself and you made something extraordinary. Um, yes, but that, that was certainly something to do with it. Um, it started because I went to Vienna with my family, uh, so wife and two children, and um, I wanted, I wa we wanted to have a nice time and a family holiday, but I wanted to, them to see the Gustav Klimt paintings and the Chile drawings and all of those sorts of things, Alfred Kubin. Um, and my kids are patient with me, but they're not infinitely patient. So uh, <laughs> uh, to, to give us all something to do, I bought them all sketchbooks. We had sketchbooks. And so we all had our own sketchbooks. So wherever we went, we made little drawings of our favorite clips and things like this. And apart from the fact that we all came back from holiday with these really nice little books, all of us, the kids as well, with their, their little books full of drawings, they remembered everything. Because when you draw, you really have to pay attention. Yes. Rather than just taking a photograph, you kind of forget it. Yeah. Uh, and so we got back and they remembered everything. They remembered all the places we've been. They remembered the names of the artists. So it's a real lesson in paying attention. I think. Whenever I go out to a restaurant or something, I always bring my sketchbook. And when Freya was little, she always had sketchbooks. But for reasons best known to herself, she always insisted in drawing in mine. <laughs> <laughs> Yours was the proper one. Well, uh, as she got older, she started drawing in her own area, which was yes. she started from the front, but it was at the back. Yeah. Well, it's mine. But when she was younger, they were just interspersed. Do you draw people when you're sketching? Because I, you don't draw people so often in your work. I wondered if you practice by drawing people in the restaurants. I've done that occasionally, um, but not often. And... Um, I have little moleskins yeah. and I've done more drawings in those than I have in, um, in my sketchbooks. And more often than not, I've done them when I've done board meetings or stuff like that. I just draw on the other people. Although I usually find that a great time to draw my own stuff. So when you're, when you're bored in a board meeting, yes, I can see that. No, actually it's to help pay attention. <laughs> no, it works. It works. If I'm drawing, I'm paying much more attention than if, than if I'm trying to pay attention. Yeah. Great. So, you've, how many movies have you made now? I, I've seen two, is that right? Um, well, I've made three. Um, and 
uh, and I'm, I'm working on another one at the moment. So uh, it will probably end up being four. It's becoming harder and harder to, to raise the money to make these things. And they are, they are torturous to make. So I think I might stick at four. Is that because you're getting increasingly ambitious or is it just? No, I think it's because um, I, I never really wanted a career uh, as a film director. Uh, and, you, it, you know, if you're going to do that, you've really got to um, just make that the centre of your life. And most of the time is spent developing things and rewriting things and going to lunches and pitching and this sort of desperate non-working part of your life where you're really just trying to get funds together and money together and, and asking permission to work really. And, and then there's a little moment where you actually get to work. Right. And I never wanted to do that. I never fancied that. I had a taste of it and really it just made me miserable. And I like just working. So that's why I like books. I can just think of something now and you know, in half an hour's time, just start it. I don't need to ask anybody's permission. Exactly. Or raise a... Yeah. yeah. I, I was... Um, a... Sorry. Go on. No, go. Carry on. I remember talking to some artists at... Um, uh, I think it was probably a comic convention. I can't remember. But I remember the conversation. And they were talking about how they do things. And somebody was saying they use a cloth to get the background. Other people use airbrush. Other people use... I think that's the bottom and they just use a paintbrush and I was listening fascinated but not saying anything and in the end they turned on me and they said what do you use what you know what's your medium and I said well if I looked at my working life and saw what I was doing most of the time I'd have to say a telephone <laughs> yes <laughs> but yes and that wasn't what they meant and and it was interesting to me what they meant because I started essentially colouring drawings and then gradually migrated to paintings. Yeah. But that fact that you can do it alone is wonderful. I mean, writers can do that. Yes, yeah, that's almost like the purest thing curious creativity really isn't it that you're creating something from nothing yes and that's the that's the writer's job I, I, I mean I really love writing and I've, I've, I've uh, become more confident with it but it's taken a long time to feel confident writing um, whereas I was always drawing as a, I can't remember a time in my life when I was not drawing I'm sure you're the same mm. and so it's always been part of what I do and I was always the artist in the school so it was never really up for question. Whereas writing is something else. Writing is, you just need a life. You need to have had a life to write. I think you need to have a, have experiences to draw draw from, and an understanding of people to draw from. And it's it's not a skill that you can pick up or are born with. You just have to develop it. Well, I would say all the skills that you're born with still need to be practiced and polished. Yes. Yeah, I find a problem with writing because I was very dyslexic. Ah. I was, I still am. And um, sort of the humiliation of school experiences 
you know, they flood in when I've got to write something. I can get round it, and I get round it by that um, trick of the mind that takes out, out the editing part of your brain. You're not editing. Right. You're thinking on, in words, that's it. Yes. I, if I can do that, I can do it. But it's, yeah. it's still, I have to stay in that frame of mind all the time. If I slip out of it, I stop. But whereas I can, with drawing, I can be there. It's the natural space to be. Yeah. But that state of mind is really interesting. I've been trying to, uh, I've spent a long time now really focusing and trying to pay attention to that state of mind when things work. Yes. Because it's very, it's very quicksilver. It's very hard to define. And I'm, I'm, I don't, I, maybe you've had a similar feeling where you're aware when, if you know that something is not working you become aware of why it's not working you're over worrying it or overthinking it or you're too concerned about the deadline and that becomes a pressure and a worry and stressful and you're more focused on the deadline than actually just enjoying making the thing yeah. so there's overthinking it and then there's sort of underthinking it where you're just being lazy and not really paying attention and you know I've done this I've done this years you know I've got spent years of my life doing this I should be able to do this easily and you're not really really engaging with it so you have to kind of hit this middle ground where you're not not over worrying and overthinking and not being uh, lazy about it and just riding that feeling a bit like I suppose it's a bit like when you're driving a car, you're not really thinking about all the things that you do in the car. You just do it. You can't think about it. If you do, uh, you stop. I remember Stuart Copeland saying, you know, you don't think about playing every note on a drum kit. You just, it just happens. You just play in a, in, in a flow. A centipede doesn't think about which leg to go down next. He just does it as a flow. If he thought about which leg, he'd trip over. And I quite like that little visual metaphor about trying to get into that that flow well you watch a cat jump onto a wall mm -hmm. clearly yes. perfectly but yeah. impossible to imagine any creature thinking that through yeah 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 so it, i've just been really interested in trying to focus down on 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 what that takes i have the same i do do you have this day my first day working on any, a new project is almost always the same. It's a day of completely wasted effort, trying to do things, starting things, ending up with a table full of stuff, and it all goes in the bin. And I go back to the house and have to tell my wife that I, I've forgotten how to do it. I can't, don't seem to be able to draw or paint anymore. I'm going to have to go and get a proper job. And, um, and she just says, don't worry, she gives me a glass of wine, it'll be fine tomorrow. And tomorrow it's fine, or the next day or whatever. But I always have that initial moment, that, that first time where I just seem to have forgotten how to do it. And I think it's panic, realising that I'm not fully in control of the arrival of ideas and the, the arrival of inspiration. It comes, but it's not like pressing a button or... Put, you know picking up something and I know I, here's my idea for the day it just arrives 
it's sorry i'm just changing what i'm doing um it's to me if i'm about to do something yep. i prepare for it not by trying to come up with the ideas or anything like that i make sure i've got a damn good story to listen to something totally distracting and then i make sure everything else is easy and i kind of trust to the process but nevertheless i think part of that process is full starts mm -hmm. and a lot of them yeah because my full starts are in a sketchbook i don't throw them away and i often look at them later and think yeah that was a full start or this was interesting it was nothing to do with what i need but it was something i might at some future date have a good use for mm -hmm. and i i find that when i'm starting i i take that was an idea i'd like to use that was an idea i'd like to use how can i mix them and yeah but there's a lot of that time when you do nothing yeah i was asked because i do some live painting i was asked um, how different is it when I'm on my own? And I said, when I'm on my own, I feel free to wander off. You know, I might go and make a cup of tea that takes half an hour, or I might just go for a walk and come back. If I'm doing it live, I can't do that. Um, and those times out can be sitting back and looking at it for a minute, or they can be, as I say, I go for a walk. Do you feel an obligation to get it right? I think that's what would frighten me doing online uh, drawing and painting, is I, I get so much of it wrong. And I'm happy to do that because it's all part of the process. Um, but I, I would feel an obligation to, to not do that, to get it right, if I'm being watched. I, I do at, at festivals. If I'm at a table and people ask me for a sketch, I, I have an obligation to get it right. And so I tend to play it safe. And so it's not much fun for me. Whereas when I'm on my own, I have a lot of fun, but I get a lot of things wrong. I find it doesn't work unless you're having fun. If I'm not having fun, I'm not doing it. And no point carrying on in a way. Mm -hmm. um, I have hardly ever drawn in front of an audience that's there. These are online. Yes. Um, on the few occasions I have done it, people have asked me to draw something specific. So, wondering what to do really comes into it. <laughs> I do remember yeah. one notorious occasion, I signed something and they asked if I could do a Yes logo. So I drew the square one. And they said, no, no, not that one. I want the curvy one. And I thought about it. I said, I can't. And they said, why not? I, said, I can't remember how it goes. <laughs> and they said, that's, that's ridiculous. I've done that a thousand times on my sketchbook. And I said, well, my problem is I only ever did it once. So, so. And I'd have to think about it. I'd, I'd, you know, rework it out. Yeah. I think the funniest thing I've ever seen uh, with, with, uh, with live drawing, fortunately, it wasn't me. I was with a friend of mine, Kent Williams, who's an amazing painter, draftsman. I mean, extraordinary painter. Uh, but he was, uh, 
he was asked he was given this big sketchbook and it was it was it was a sketchbook for an, a Walt one of the original Walt Disney animators that he was about 90 years old and they were getting this big sketchbook together of drawings so there was pressure and um and they asked him to draw something uh Mickey Mouse or something and Kent Williams doesn't draw Mickey Mouse he draws these sort of uh, very realistic and uh, dark allegorical pictures and he started to try and draw Mickey Mouse in this sketchbook and the more lines he put down the more miserable this mouse looked and the more appalling and drug addled and it was just awful and everybody around was starting to sort of smile a little bit watching desperately as this as Kent started to panic and the sweat appeared as he tried to turn this mouse into something that didn't look so degenerate and the worse it got, we were just on the floor laughing at the end of it. It was so funny. But I've never seen somebody sort of collapse on a piece of paper so much. Yeah. It's a wonderful experience. I don't think he's ever got over it, the trauma of doing that. <laughs> well, I guess hopefully he could laugh too. Uh, yes, the next day maybe. I think then, I don't, I don't think he slept that night worrying about this dreadful thing that he put in a book. It's like a curse in a sketchbook. It is, even when you do all right, the aftermath of something public tends to be very embarrassing. Yeah. I do dwell on those things, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. Those bad experiences. Yes. So, so have you found the painting? Have you found things in, in painting live that you, that you maybe wouldn't have found? Uh, if you hadn't have been going this going through this rather analytical process of explaining what you're doing and showing what you're doing and having Freya question you about what you're doing, let alone the audience who's online as well, has it has it have you gained something from it? I have, yes. And um, one of the things that fascinated me is something I did without thinking for years now. I was asked about it, and um, I realised I didn't have a clue. Who I did. And I'll explain. <clears throat> when I did my early work, there was an enormous amount of detail. More detail than could be reproduced. You know, I wouldn't design a building, mm. I wouldn't paint a building without doing the door and without doing a door handle and some kind of design input into that door handle. <clears throat> and it just wouldn't show. And when I started painting, I abandoned a lot of that. And people were asking me how I got so much detail into my paintings. And I said, it, essentially, it's a trick. It's not there. But I'd learned how to give the impression that it is there. And when the question came, how, I realized I didn't have a clue. And it reminded me of that story about sexing chickens, chicks. You know about that? Apparently, there's no, I don't think so. <clears throat> there's no visual or scientific way. Sorry, there is a scientific way. There's no visual way of telling male from female chicks, and they have to be sorted. And the way it's done is someone does it with a mentor until they start getting it right, but they don't know how they get it right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of those things. Your yes. brain is taking on board signals that somehow you cannot 
identify consciously. And I thought, right, this is an interesting experience about the impression of detail. And I'm going to have a look at that. So I'm losing my voice today, which is a challenge. It's, um, yeah, it's a nice exercise. How is that coming about? Because I hadn't thought about it, but I knew it was to a degree it was there. Yeah, I think, I think I think again that's why I like silent cinema and those media that hold something back. I love comics. Yeah, comics. there there is narrative, but there is no motion. There is no movement, and there's no sound. But if you really fall, if it's a good one, and you really fall into that story, you start to sense the motion of the characters, and you start to sense how they speak, and you start to hear their voices, and you start to hear the story. Yeah. Um, it's like, and also if you have a radio play, there are no images. But if it's a good one, again, you can close your eyes, and you're right there. You're right there in the woods or the city, and right there with those people. And you get a sense of what they look like and how they move. And you're engaged, you're providing half the story. And that's what silent films always did with their audiences. They, they were never silent. There was always music playing. But so much of what happened on screen, you had to intuit the story and the emotions of the characters. Yes. And uh, that's why I think people really loved those films and felt personally invested in them. Well, you said close your eyes and you can see it, but of course... You can listen to a fantastic story when you're painting or driving. Yes. <laughs> Your eyes won't help. Yeah. You can so, at once. You can so when you're, see yeah. it and then see what's out there. Yeah. So when you're painting, uh, do you, you do you listen to... What do you listen to? Do you, do you listen to music or do you listen to words or what do you listen to? If I'm about to paint, I make sure I have... Hmm, at least one, maybe two or three, really good stories, depending on how long it takes. You know, um, a typical novel is about nine hours. Lord of the Rings is probably 30 hours. Right, sorry, that's my phone going. It will be picked up. <laughs> there you go, you see, I have minions that do that. I don't need to pick up my own phone. <laughs> so, Claire presumably doesn't. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> uh, yeah. When I'm writing, I can't listen to words. That's the only thing. That's my only rule. I, li I like um, uh, instrumental music. And I, uh, I watched a... Um, I was a big fan of uh, Anthony Minghella before he died. And he was a great teacher in as much as everything that he wrote and all of his director's commentaries and all of his interviews... They're great sources of in, insight, insight into creativity and all of those sorts of things that he had to deal with. Right. And he talked a lot about the specific music that he listened to. And he, he listened to Bach a lot because it's very ordered. Yeah. It, it works. It orders your mind. If you listen to uh, Bach piano uh, pieces or... Um, uh, quartets or whatever it just there's something about the mathematical nature of it that really helps order your thoughts so that was really useful I I do I I have music like that to listen to 
Um, Ruichi Sagamoto is one of my favorite. Oh, yeah, beautiful. Um, but I also have music to calm me down or to energize. So yeah. probably I've been through a few days where I needed energizing, and I've got a lot of um, Allman Brothers blues, The yeah. Doors, stuff like that over there as well. So yeah, it's 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 a it's besides being a fabulous pleasure, it's also a useful tool to manipulate state of mind. But yeah. when I want to be distracted, which is not what I want when I'm occasionally writing, but when I'm painting, I do want total distraction. So, That's interesting. Yeah, that be, and you're being distracted from what? From having conscious thinking, screwing it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's 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 what I've been trying to pay attention to on these on these um, these times when I'm realizing that it's not working and why it's not working, and it and it and it is about overthink, and it does help. You're right. It does help to distract yourself in some way, so that you you can just glide, and uh, your mind is also engaged in this other thing it's a strange little mind game we play with ourselves hmm. do you have a notebook for ideas well i have sketchbooks all the time i've got loads of them kicking around here there are piles of them and yes i do make notes all the time and i always have to work out everything visually whether it's a an image, a painting, or a drawing, or a logo, or topography, or anything. I have to do it physically with a pen on paper. I'm really no good at working out ideas on screen. Um, I don't do that at all. Well, lots of people do, and I think a lot of art students now assume you go straight to a screen as soon as you start a project. And I guess if that's what, if that's how you you've always done it well maybe you can make it work maybe that's fine but i just can't there's something about making connection with paper physically and the mistakes that happen and the awkwardness of the lines that it kicks off so many more ideas than working in digital you know strict space i love paper yeah um, and, and, and what it gives you as well, the stain of it and the grain of it and all of that. Yeah. Yes, everything about it. Um, I work from very rough watercolour paper, very heavy rough watercolour paper, through to very smooth detail paper, which is very cheap paper. Um, yeah. But I love the fact that I can rough something out, turn a page, see what I've done, and think, okay, I need a bit more mass here, turn a page, a bit of detail there, and it gradually, you know, 20, 30, 40 pages comes about. And that works for doing, like you say, a logo or letter form or some detail of a painting or even the whole image. It's I've seen you talk a little bit about gesture before, and it's all about that, isn't it? It's that it's making those gestural lines and marks, and that's where the inspiration comes from. Well, I was thinking your gestures are so good, I couldn't imagine you would literally fill up a waste paper bin of your starting work. They're here. <laughs> no, they're really, they're really, they're really not worth it. <laughs> 
<clears throat> no, but it, it's a funny. It's a funny thing also when you're drawing. There's something. I mean, I I can only describe it as magic. Now, I, I'm a, not a serious. You know, I don't believe in anything supernatural. I don't believe in magic. But there's something about a drawing, and it's you can make the drawing. It looks perfectly fine. It looks like a face. It maybe even looks like the person that you're talking to, but it just looks dead. It doesn't have that magic that thing that sparks it into life um and i i can't explain it in any way and yet i can draw it again and again and then the fourth one just takes a light and it's just got something something about the distortion something about something i've noticed about the the angle of the nose and the way it goes into the eye and i've caught it that time it's just a little thing like that. And that's what sparks the drawing into life. And that's what you're after. The previous three go in the bin because they're dead. But the last one is the one you want. Who want your bin? <laughs> well, yes. I, I, I think one of the disciplines I found when I was designing more than drawing, I find them difficult to separate. Uh, you know, painting is a massive design effort as much as designing a building or a logo. So yes, it's all there, but um, I've been working a lot on something and I think, right, this is it. And I do a finished version. Let's say it's a letter and I know I've got it wrong. And it takes, for me, it takes discipline to say, okay, you've got to do that letter again. Even though it looked finished, you've got to do, again you've got to get that bit and then yeah. i'll find i think right that's it perfect and when i put them together it doesn't mesh with the next letter and i have to rethink it and to go back and rethink it it's heartbreaking but you can't not do it you have to kill your babies as they say um, that's a, I think that's a script writing term, isn't it? You've got to, uh, there's often you write something and you're so, you really like it, it's really clever, it's got some great lines in it, but you know actually it's not needed. It's yeah. not really needed. And you hang on to it yeah. desperately. I mean, lots of filmmakers I think do this. They shoot scenes and it's, it's a lovely scene. There's something about it they really love but they know that it's not necessary and the film's too long and hang on to it and hang on to it. And then eventually you just have to cut it. You've just got to cut it. So tell me this, what makes a film too long? Because people now will watch 10 hours of a movie. I think now the rules have changed. I think uh, films can be as long as they are uh, and they can be a minute long and they can be obviously, you know, hours and hours. Yeah. Uh, but. I think I think traditionally when you had uh, a, a cinematic film that if you're going to go over two hours, there's some sort of mental uh, clock, alarm clock that goes off somewhere between an hour and three quarters and two hours. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to go over that, you've really got to have something special to have somebody sat there concentrating for more than that. Um, I think, uh, I mean, lots of people talk about that. I, I know. John Cleese is really good about creativity and he's very good about explaining his process and how he's found a way to generate the, the most ideas, to do the most intensive work, to work at the, in the very highest, um, you know, 
most effective way that he can. And he talks about this open mode and of, of when you're open to receiving ideas. And so he, he, he books himself time. And it has to be, can't be too small amount of time because then you never actually forget all the chores you've got to do and all the rubbish in the rest of your life and all of that sort of stuff. You've got to just be able to leave that behind and know you've got a good time now devoted to cracking this problem and working on this thing. But it can't be too long an amount of time because then you never get around to it. It feels open-ended, it feels unfocused or whatever. It's an amount of time. And I think he said it's something like three hours, something like that. It's an amount, two to three hours where he's going to write something and do something. And that's really works for him. And that's really worked for me as well. If I've, if I've got a, a script I need to really crack or an idea I've got to come up with or something, I'll absolutely cordon this amount of time. After lunch, I'm going to do three hours on this and nothing else. And the, and the internet goes off and the phones come, come off the hook and all of that. And I just focus on this. And that really works. So, the, so there is some sort of mental alarm clock that goes off that allows you to focus on something for a while and then you're just tired I think after that you're just tired you need a break I Does that know, make sense <laughs> no I mean I'm fine I find that um, when I'm getting into it with a painting um, it has its own schedule yeah. and I work for 30 minutes and have to take a when I have to take a break, and I sit back and look, might be short time or I might do that walk around. But it, you have to do that reboot. It might be a little one, it might be a big one, but it sets that pace, not me. And if I'm lucky, I can do 12 or 14 hours in a day. But if I'm unlucky, I might not do one hour. But I usually can manage to be putting some serious amount of time because it's very relaxing. And I tend to do it when I'm on my own, like at the weekends, when I'm not busy. And that works for me. I love to clear the decks on a Friday. Okay, do all yeah, it's not so much the... Yeah, it's not so much... I was going to say it's not so much the doing of it no. uh, when you can relax into it hmm. and spend all day on something. It, it's the coming up with those core ideas. Yes. You really have to try and generate from nothing and solve the problem from which you can then make the painting or the design or the drawing or whatever. But coming up with those core ideas, you, I think, really takes a focus amount of time. I mean, you can spend all day on it, but I think you'd be wasting most of it. But uh, uh, that, that focus two or three hours is what seems to work. Yes. I, I'd never read Stephen King until relatively recently. And I was astonished how engrossed I became in one of his books. And I find it fascinating to listen to his book on writing. That was as engaging as any of his novels. And to hear that insight into yeah. the process was amazing. Yeah, I think any, anybody who's 
Uh, I mean, you know, it's a bit like Anthony Mengele, any of these people who really pay attention to what they do and how it happens. Yes. I, I always think endlessly fascinating. We started because I said we were going to... The other, the, the other thing John Cleese used to say was... Sorry. Sorry? The other thing John Cleese used to say was what? Should, should I just finish? I'm sorry, I, I, yeah, I was just going to finish that thought. Uh, the other thing Cleese used to say was he always used to write with Graham Chapman and he always felt that Graham Chapman was a naturally funnier, better writer than him. But the difference between them was that Chapman would come up with some instant flight of fancy, some instant great idea, and then get bored and just go. And he wouldn't work it through. Whereas John Cleese was much more methodical. He didn't come up with those extraordinary leaps of thought. But he worked at an idea and worked at an idea and worked at the script. You can see that in Faulty Towers. He works them and works them and bangs his head against them to make them work. And that's why, in the end, his writing tended to be more satisfying because it was thoroughly worked through. But he was totally convinced that Graham was a naturally better writer. Hmm. It's, it's one of the things we discussed the other day was, um, I'm sure it happens to you an enormous number of times, people ask, where do your ideas come from? Yes. And it's, it's, that's that answer, isn't it? It's, you have to make space for them to come. Yes, you have to be available for them. And trust that they will, and not worry them and bully them. No. And, and, it's, and it's sometimes hard to do that because it does feel out of, con out of my control. It, yeah. it, they, I, I'm not, I have no idea why the idea just arrived. You can, I can look at it in all kinds of different ways. You can look at it in the way that the brain works. It's, it, it is about firing a new network. It is, you can look at it in terms of, you know, breaking the idea down as to why, what makes an idea. It's not a single thing. It's two things rubbing against each other. That's what makes an idea. So you can look at it in lots of different ways, but actually how that idea just arrived, I don't know, just did. Do you ever um, read Neil's book, Neil Bohr's Gunslinger Theory? Neil Bohr's? Yeah. Neil's Bohr? Uh, no, no. Um, Tell me. 120 years ago now, I guess. Um, he said that... Um, the two gunmen, they're in a duel. The one who draws, if they're absolutely equal physically, the one who draws first will lose. Mm. And his logic was, he's thinking about it. And the other one is reacting. And mm. the part of the brain that does the reacting is far more efficient than the part of the brain that does the thinking. That's interesting. And Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because, because the, the worst thing you can be given as a brief is just do anything. You've got nothing to react against. Whereas my favorite briefs are put me in a box that I've got to fight my way out of and respond to. Right. 
I'm going to do a finishing off of, of that first thought, though. Okay, sorry. No, it's no order to this stuff. Um, if you are working hard, trying to figure something out, I, my usual example is something like a quadratic equation. Your brain isn't working as hard as when you're daydreaming. That's counterintuitive. And the um, way people can tell that their brain is working harder when um, you're daydreaming is the way you test all work, it's the heat generated. So your brain generates more heat daydreaming than when you're struggling with a, um, an analytical problem. Right. That says to me, if you're struggling with an analytical problem, you must be doing the wrong thing. You're not thinking properly. But we all need to do it. There comes a point where you need to, okay, there's the idea, wonderful. Now I've got to make it work. Yeah. So it's yeah. a simple process. You write something, now you have to proofread it. Yeah. They're different, different modes of thinking, aren't they? Yes. One, one is playful and um and enjoys things like mistakes and chance and uh rubbing up against challenges rubbing up against um other pe other people and environments that can put in new information so I, I i watched a great talk somebody saying that the uh their, their big thesis was the enlightenment grew out of coffee shops uh because previously Everybody went to the pub and they were they got drunk and were you know understimulated, but they were over relaxed basically. Um, whereas coffee shops, you've got stimulant going on and you're surrounded with interesting people and people people met there to talk and swap ideas and it's like a culture for uh, a live culture for generating ideas. Yes. So Vienna yeah, at the end of the last century or Paris in the twenties or any of these. LA in the 60s or whatever they were focused in concentrations of interesting people all coming together getting yeah. highly stimulated together and bouncing off and challenging each other yeah 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 that makes a lot of sense doesn't it it does make a lot of sense did you feel I, I, got, I had that feeling in art school did you have that feeling in art school I know different people had different experiences Yes, and when I went to Canterbury, I struggled with that because I felt I felt quite isolated in a way at Canterbury. When I went to the Royal College, it was different. Yes, the common room was a fantastic place. It was a yeah. real engine for ideas. And the notion that um, there, was, there was much more freedom to screw up and that was essential yeah. you know I remember being taught at Canterbury stop talking concentrate and thinking even then without any other knowledge that's just wrong yes. you know it, absolutely wrong it it isn't susceptible to that kind of rigidity You know, I've talked to people um, about talking to children 
teaching children. I was asked once, how do I teach children? I did a, a talk to a lot of primary school teachers and I said, read to them, take their mind off it. But if they're talking and they're doing it, I think they'll do it. You know, they might ask for help, great. But it's not a machine that needs a lot of starting. It, you know, kids do it. Crayon, yeah. we do it. I, th I think all of those, all of those things that encourage play, music and and activity and uh, story and yeah. are wonderful ways of, of getting the brain to think and generate ideas that can then go off in lots of other directions. It's a, it's such a shame to me that those those arts are so undervalued in education and increasingly so. I think. You think? I. I think so. Did you know well, music classes are being acted? Did you know Ken Robinson's talks? Uh, yes, I certainly saw his talk, and I, I uh, from that talk, I was I was so inspired by that talk. I, I looked up uh, some of his other um, editorial writing. So yes, sadly died recently. Yes, he did. Yeah, I, it's um, it, if anyone else is listening, hopefully there will be. You can see his talks on TED on education, and they're they're very inspirational. Yes. Yeah, there are, there are only there are, it, it, there are very few people who in that field have the sort of breadth of vision to be able to stand back and have a grand view on on what it's for and why we should be doing it, rather than noodling away at little changes and uh, and dealing with problem issues, but have a have a grand view. And he really did have a grand view. I'm. I think we have to rethink education. But I think we also have to rethink from a different point of view, our school education. It seems to me that when you have an idea, bringing it into the world requires knowledge and skills. And if you have an idea, no matter how brilliant it is, it's a tragedy if you don't have the wherewithal to interpret it and to build it or to make it or to draw it. Yes. It also takes engaging with the world. Uh, that My frustration is always I'm lecturing to a class full of illustrators or designers, this narrow pigeonhole box of people. Yeah. Often on campus, full of interesting people. You know, they're over there, there are scientists and historians and yeah. geologists. Yeah. Uh, go and talk to them, you know, and let them talk to you. And science needs art as much as artists need science. Science need art, need people who are artists and other creatives to help them get out of the box and think out of the box and think of other possibilities. And art needs the real world rooting of science because it's in massively inspiring. But also it makes art gives it purpose, doesn't it? It makes it have some sort of reason to exist. So it's got to be a conversation out there in the real world, not stuck away in little cubicles in art schools. You should talk to Freire about that subject. <laughs> he did two courses. He did um, scientific and natural history illustration. At, um, well, her school was in Blackpool, but it was part of Lancaster. 
And then she went to Central St. Martin's for postgrad doing an art science course. And it sounded wonderful. And the lady who invited her to apply did brilliant work. But the way it was run was weirdly unimaginative. It was essentially saying, oh, this is a very interesting piece of science replicated kind of way. So it was just using it as a subject matter, not actually engaging the mind of the students at all. Um, I thought it was odd that, that it wasn't really about science. A missed opportunity. Very much a missed opportunity. But I, I agree with you. The way of thinking, I mean, if you talk to scientists about where do you get your ideas from, they're going to say the same thing as a writer or a musician or an artist. Mm. You know, if you have the space, they'll come. Yes. But the great thing about talking to scientists is that they have these, they have these other layers of understanding of things. Yeah. If you have somebody who's... Sorry, what? They have the discipline. They have the discipline, but just, just um, I mean, there's a great Feynman lecture, Richard Feynman lecture, where he has an artist friend who says, you know, you want to, that's the trouble with you scientists, you want to analyse everything and take the magic out of everything and break it down into its component parts. And Feynman's response was always, look, I can, in, I can enjoy a flower, the beauty, the aesthetic beauty of a flower as much as anybody. Um, but also there's this level of understanding of what's going on within the flower, the cellular structure, the flower's relationship to an insect, the fact that this insect only goes to this flower, that means that this insect actually has a sense of colour and just, you know, the world is opening up, opening up, opening up, and it only makes the, an under, a love of, an awe of the world bigger yeah. and more extraordinary. I don't, I don't see how it makes it smaller and, and reductive. No, I agree. I absolutely agree. Yes. Are you, did you enjoy science as a, at school? I, I did, but I didn't appreciate it. I mean, like, you know, like a lot of those things, um, I, I think I was just at, at the wrong age or in the wrong space for those things. Um, since then, so I, so I didn't pay attention. I loved the natural world. I've always loved drawing birds and animals and, and I did that when I was very very little I've always done that yeah, me too. I, I was always in awe of space and plan the planets and the stars and the sheer scale of everything so I, I never had uh, I always loved all of that but I didn't really pay attention to, to my science classes and then I did a book I spent a year doing a book with Richard Dawkins and the, there were a series of chapters covering different scientific questions so I went, I basically went back to school. I, I went to my uh, kids, head of chemistry and head of physics and said, look, I'm doing this book. Can you talk me through the periodic table and the Newton's experiment and Crucius and the, the light get passing through a prism? And can you just delighted to do it for, a, you know, for a thank you in the book at the end? Um, and it was amazing. And I'm sat there as a sort of, you know, 40 odd year old adult going why did I not pay attention in class this is amazing 
So you've just got to be in the right frame of mind. And it's got to be taught in the right way, I think. Well, everything. That comes down to everything. Teachers that don't engage with a problem. Yeah. yeah. I've always thought that, te- that the, uh, another problem is this. It's the same problem as the little art, uh, pigeonholes in art schools. Dividing the subjects up like this into little pigeonholes, I don't think that's right either. No. I think uh, because everything is, is everything, every subject is, a, is affected by everything else. You could take any historical event or any uh, natural phenomenon or anything in people's lives, something that actually affects their lives, birth or, um, you know, uh, becoming a, a parent or any of these sorts of things that everybody goes through. And, and explode that subject out into history and physics and the chemistry of it and the biology of it and the social history of it and, um, you know, the theological side of it and the stories we tell about each other, the mythological side of it and the art that's been created around it and the music and everything. And one subject could touch all of these things. And once you have a net, a network, you tend to have a context for that information. You remember it, but just little isolated facts, you forget them because they have no context. So I think this sort of network way of teaching would be a much better way of doing it, project-based. What did you actually do at art school? Or did you even go to art school? Yeah, I did go to art school. I, I, um, I, I went to, I, did, I just went to a local art school intending to do, um, you know, a, a general course, a, a foundation. Um, and I just wanted to do what I liked, which was drawing comics and sort of slightly fantastical illustrations and intending to just do that and illustrate books and record covers and things. That's what I wanted to do. And just leave me alone. I want to do that. That was my, that was my state of mind going to art school. And then, um, I knew I was going to have a hard time when my very first drawing lesson in a life class, for starters, I was surrounded by lots of other people who were also the best artists in their respective schools. So they were all really good. So I knew I wasn't just, you know, uh, going to breeze through this. Uh, we did our first bit of life drawing and I spent the morning doing a drawing very, very realistically and trying to make it all look right. And we got to halfway and we had lunch and we came back from lunch and my, what I now think brilliant teacher, art school, uh, art, um, drawing teacher, George Glennie, his name was, said, right, everybody um, move round one. So then I had to go and work on the guy next to me's drawing and somebody else came and drew all over mine. And it really broke down your preciousness and your self, you know, your, your worrying over it over things it's all it was all about breaking breaking those preconceptions down so you just got much looser um another one was uh, we got halfway through the day and he insisted we went over to the sink and washed our drawing off we couldn't even keep what we did we had to wash it off physically destroy it and then come back and work over and it felt brutal at the time and we had there were real complaints going on but Actually, it did me the power of good. It made me much less precious and much more willing to try things and play and be open. 
I remember starting at art school doing a life drawing class and being hugely embarrassed about the process. But um, I got hoiked out of it by the principal because I had O-level, okay? About the lowest level you would even consider being relevant. Right. O-level maths and physics. And he said, right. you can't do fine art with maths and physics. What? Uh, why? What, what was his reason? I his or her reason? That he thought I couldn't do it and I was sent to do industrial design. But when I went to art school, I had notions. I knew nothing about how it was. And I wanted to do natural history, drawing and painting. I loved that. Like you, you know, it's yeah. hardwired into me. But the other thing I wanted to do was design the future. They're going to do industrial design seemed like a good move. But um, I remember being deeply frustrated by the way we were taught there. You know, the design part of it. Everything had to be a box. We would be living in a box. We would be designing boxes within boxes. And it, that just felt so wrong. I didn't really have the confidence to know it was wrong, but it felt wrong. It seems such a shame that you could, that you weren't weren't allowed to, in parallel, study both of those things: the natural world and drawing and free expression, and and the application of that to industrial design. The weird thing is, I was because um, I started in art school in 1961, which is about the time Richard Hamilton managed to persuade the powers that be that art education needed to move away from academic training and life drawing and composition and all that really important stuff. And it was all abandoned in 1961. Yeah. Except people doing what I was doing, design. We still had life drawing. We did yeah. perspective, measure perspective, shadows perspective. We drew, we ran out in the country and drew. You know, we did enormous amount of very disciplined drawing. So that was really interesting for me. Yeah. So I was basically, yes, doing the same. I was on an applied arts course. I wasn't on a fine arts course. Right. Um, so, but, but that was lovely. It was, uh, we did photography and printmaking. We did, um, you know, we went out and, and uh, drew from life. We had life class, life drawing class. And then we did design, graphic design, typography. Uh, we were, we would, uh, my, uh, my age, I was just at the cusp of going into computers. So we did hot metal type, proper typesetting on press. And then they had, the, the college had bought a computer. It was in a room. It was manned by a man in a white smock who would take your typography brief. And he would, the next day, he would give you your piece of typesetting for you to use in your design. But I'm kind of glad that I got to learn all that. I'm glad I got to learn how to set type. Yes. I know that it's called leading, not leading, because it's a piece of lead yeah. that goes between the type. Yeah. So I'm really glad I, I was at college at that time and it wasn't completely computer-based. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad for the discipline side of it. Um, something I endlessly say, but there's a lovely saying in Kendo about training the hand, where the hand trains the mind. And I remember being challenged by a member of staff when I was talking to students about 
putting in the time to learn to draw. Yeah. They were very dismissive. But I suppose you think drawing art is all about technique. And I was able to quote this um, thing from Kendo. You do need to train the hand so the hand can train the mind. And the amount of real estate in the brain that's devoted to hand-eye coordination is enormous. You know, if you're learning to play the violin or you're learning to draw, you're giving your brain a real workout. Mm. It's good for it. Good for you. Yeah. 10,000 hours it's supposed to be, isn't it, to uh, master it? Yeah. Yeah. How about halfway? How about you? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Something like that. Well, yes. I, I don't know. I, we're all in this social distancing world at the moment. It would be fantastic to meet up again. I yes. Love you. Yes. I, I visited you and I walked across the pond to the studio from your house. And in that pond, there was a grass snake. Ah, uh, yes. I thought, you, you are honoured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were that day. They, they visited occasionally. We even have the odd kingfisher. Yes, so we must meet up soon. Yes, definitely. Uh, it's, it's noon. So okay. I'm going to record this and send it to you. Well, I've recorded it. You have, I hope you have recorded, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Too late now. Too late now. Have you written down everything you've said? Yeah, exactly. I've got it scripted. Good. Oh. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Well, yes, it's been really, really lovely pleasure. Anytime. Yes. And I do love the freedom and the choreography rather than the calligraphy of your lines. They Thank are you very, very elegant. Thank you. And I must get my... And I've enjoyed watching you online. I haven't watched them all, but I've, I've, I've watched in a few times. And I like, uh, I like the interplay between... I think Freya's great as well. She's a real star. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really nice thing to do and it's nice seeing the questions come up and it's nice to see you respond to them. So, yeah. Very, you're very brave to do it. I don't think I could do it. Well, it's, yeah, it's been fun, actually. Good. Thank you, Dave. Thank okay. You. Cheers. I'll speak to you soon. Indeed. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.